maybe today. All right, let's uh, bow together. Father, we do praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your love poured out and demonstrated in sending him to die for our sins. And Father, we thank you that someday we will see him as he is. And Father, we look forward to that. Yet Father, right now we walk by faith. And you use your word to grow our faith. To grow us in the grace and knowledge of your son. Pray you prepare our hearts as we prepare to look into your word. That we would be ready to receive it that we would humbly yield our hearts to what you have to say through your word and we would allow your spirit to change us. Lord, I thank you for this time and we commit it to you now in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, the reality is if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, we're going to suffer at some time or another for doing what is right. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to do what is right. You're going to do those things at times that are pleasing in his sight. And those things that are right and pleasing in his sight are not pleasing often to those who are not following him or those who do not know him. And within that, there's the reality that suffering will come for following Jesus Christ. As you obey the Lord, you might see suffering at your work environment Not because you're being ungodly, but because you're doing the right thing. Uh, You might see suffering within your family, within those who don't know you, or don't know, excuse me, don't know the Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ said himself, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The reality is when we turn to Jesus Christ, there is an instant division between us and those who do not know Christ. But that division is good so that we know who knows the Lord and who doesn't, so that they might come to the Lord. It may happen in church. When you obey the Lord, that those who are not walking with the Lord or those who don't know him may come against you. You see, before we came to Christ, we didn't have any issues in regards to righteousness and suffering. But now that we've come to Christ, the reality is we're going to, in some way or another, at some time suffer for doing what is right. Now, some have experienced that quite a bit more. Some haven't. But when it comes, how can we endure unjust suffering? You know, the Apostle Peter shares very clearly that we're not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon us for our testing, as he shared with them, as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. The reality is, it will come. So with that in mind, how do we endure? Well, today we're going to get to the pinnacle of the book of 1 Peter where we look at the suffering of Jesus Christ and the results of the cross, that which we should be focusing on, which incredibly encourages us in the midst of suffering because of what Christ did and what God did through him in the midst of that horrible, unjust suffering. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? And we're going to be looking at verses 24 to 25. 1 Peter 2, and we'll be looking at 24 and 25. But as I've shared, this is part of a larger section of scripture so i want to briefly remind us of the context peter is writing believers and uh these believers are uh under the roman emperor nero it's about the end of 63 a.d maybe 64 a.d and a great persecution is coming but there already has been persecution as we see in this book And these believers have been reminded that they've been chosen for a great salvation, that they are sojourners on this earth, just as we are. And this great salvation came through the reality of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. We've been born again to a living hope, a hope that is alive. We have a tremendous present salvation, and we have a wonderful future inheritance reserved for us in heaven. And all of us are being protected by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed. And yet there are the temporal realities of trials in this life, and God uses those trials to to raise up the heat in our lives, no matter how difficult or how easy they are. Everything God allows to come our way, whether it's our fault or not, whatever it might be, he is raising up the heat in our lives. He is purifying us that we would reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Now within that, 
We need to rejoice in our salvation, not in the trials, but what God is doing through his son and ultimately our salvation. Now we also saw that uh, we were to fix our hope on the grace that was to be revealed to us when Christ comes. We are to be holy because he is holy. We are to live in the context of godly fear because of the price that was paid for our redemption. We are to love the body of Christ because we were born again unto a sincere love of the brethren. And we are to be yearning for the pure milk of the word that we might grow in respect to salvation. And then in chapter 2, we were encouraged concerning what God is doing. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord that God is building us up as a holy temple, that we are the priests in this temple to offer holy and acceptable sacrifices, that God is building us up for his glory. And then we saw the wonderful reality that we are a unique uh, people, that we are precious in the sight of Christ. We are unique. We are a distinct kind, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but we have received mercy. And then we began the application portion of this book in chapter 2, where we saw that as aliens and sojourners, we are to stay away from fleshly lusts, which, which wage war with our souls. This is foundational for the rest of the book because we see all the relationships in which God allows us to be in so that we might obey his word and he might use those situations for his glory. We're to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles as they observe our behavior and slander us that ultimately they see those good deeds. They might glorify God in the day of visitation, the day he visits them certainly in judgment, but ultimately, hopefully, in salvation that they might glorify God. And then Peter began to discuss our behavior specifically among those who do not believe, specifically among Gentiles. And he talks about our relationship in regards to governing authorities, that we are to submit to every governing authority, that we are to obey and honor. And we saw in other scriptures, we are to pray and we are to honor all men. And then we came to instruction for household slaves and masters, which really helps us understand how we are to respond in the sphere of the work relationship. We are to continually, habitually submit ourselves to the authority God has placed into our lives with a right heart, fearing and honoring and doing what is right with a conscience towards God. Doing it with a right heart, trusting the Lord in every situation. And if we should suffer for doing what is right, and we respond and endure with patience, that finds favor in the sight of God. And we know his favor is upon us. It's from this point we go directly into what Peter shares concerning how we can endure this unjust suffering by learning how to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. He is our perfect example and that's what the focus of our passage is today. And today, within that, we're going to see a focus on the marvelous results of the cross of Christ. Again, First Peter 2, and we're going to start in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving, you an, example, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And our passage. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What a tremendous passage. And here within this portion, it's pretty clear that Peter is inspired by the, by, inspired by the Holy Spirit is quoting many portions of Isaiah 53. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, it's about the suffering servant, ultimately Jesus Christ, who would die for us, who would be pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, because all of us, have, like sheep, have gone astray, but he has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So how can we endure unjust suffering? Well, today we're going to see the last of three things. 
Last week we saw two things that were, were in the same passage. With that in mind, let's just review briefly what we saw last week and we will move into our passage. You might remember that we need to understand that we have been called for this purpose. Now I'm not going to go through and reteach this. You can look at this from last week's message. But we have been called for this purpose and the purpose is suffering unjustly and then responding by following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Look back a little bit at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. That means fear. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. For the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated? You endure it with patience. But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, it. this finds favor with God. Notice our verse here from last week. For you have been called for this, literally for this, this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. Christ also suffered unjustly, and that suffering was, as we will see, for us. We saw that when unjust suffering comes for doing what is right, as we trust and obey the Lord, that uh, God is gracious, that his favor is upon us. And we saw that we as believers are called for this purpose. There is the sufferings for the glories to follow. There is a cost when you come to Jesus Christ. There is a temporal cost and yet eternal glory. Now you can gain the whole world, but you will lose your own soul. But if you count the cost and lose your life now, you will gain everything in Christ. And within that cost, we realize we have been called for this purpose. It's not talking about a few believers, but every believer. We have been called for this purpose. We are going to suffer at some time unjustly for doing what is right. And in the context of 1 Peter, God uses that suffering and our righteous response in Christ to bring about redemptive opportunities like he did with Christ who brought our ultimate redemption as we will see today. We need to understand what God is doing. And although we have many different trials in this life, there are, within that sphere of the multifaceted trials, there are trials within that that are suffering as a Christian for doing what is right, for obeying the Lord and doing what is right. So first of all, we need to know that we've been called for this and not be surprised. Not be surprised when, when someone maligns you at work for doing the right thing, not for being a jerk, not for being a, a Christian jerky person that's always you know, sharing the gospel during work rather than working. There are times to share the gospel. But for someone who is doing the right thing in your mind, don't be surprised. When you do the right thing in your marriage as a wife or a husband, whatever it might be, you may be maligned. When you do the right thing in relationships, you may be maligned or spoken wrongly against. When you do the right thing in the body of Christ, you may be maligned. We have been called for this purpose, and God is using it for redemptive opportunities. And secondly, we saw last week that we need to learn to follow in his footsteps, Christ's footsteps, in our response to unjust suffering. It's one thing to enter into suffering. It's another thing to respond rightly in that. And we have much teaching in concerning that, which we saw last week. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. He left us, as we saw last week, a tracing pattern, an exact pattern for us to trace out and to walk in. And that pattern is, is, is amazing because we see he didn't commit sin, he didn't respond back, he didn't try to get out of it, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That's the pattern for us in unjust suffering and in the Christian life. We look at Christ who continually, even as God in human flesh, kept handing himself over, entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously, leaving everything in the Father's hand and thus doing God's will. We see in chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore let us who suffer according to the will of God entrust our, their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In doing what is right. So often we fear man and we fear circumstances rather than God, rather than doing what is right and, and leaving everything in his hands and entrusting him with those things. God is always faithful and he will always faithfully bring to bear on the circumstances what his will is if we are willing to submit. 
We need to hand our souls over to Christ on a, on a continual basis, giving our hearts over all the time, yielding ourselves. He kept entrusting himself continually, habitually to the one who judges righteously. And from that entrusting, from that obedience in the midst of the response to his suffering, he brought about our redemption as he brought forth the will of God. And that's what the Lord wants to do with us. Not that we bring redemption, but that Christ through his body brings about redemptive opportunities as they, as they bring forth uh, those works that are good, that people may see and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So first of all, we need to recognize we've been called for this purpose. Secondly, we are to follow and trace the exact pattern that Jesus Christ did in unjust suffering and how we respond We're not to sin, but we are to continually hand ourselves over to the one who judges righteously. And from this point, this brings us to the third and most important portion, which shows the the result of Christ's unjust suffering for us that we need to focus on, the ultimate reason for that suffering. Let me read back from 21 into our passage. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, Leaving you an example for leaving you, you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's that tracing pattern. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't try to get out of it by sinning or being deceptive. And it says, uh, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He was God in flesh. He could have said, "You're going to get it," and they would if they didn't repent. But he didn't. But he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And here you go. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Fantastic passage. For by his wounds you were healed. We have the echo of of Isaiah 53. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So as we look at what God did through Jesus, our perfect example, first of all, he reminds us that Christ bore our sins, that we would die to sin, or having died to sin, as we will see, might live to righteousness. This is so important, believer. Verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The most fabulous statement here we see is that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You could literally say, who bore our sins? Speaking of Christ, who did this? Who did this? Who did this? Who bore our sins in his body on the cross? We see here that his suffering was due to uh, unjust his suffering was unjust it wasn't he wasn't worthy of that suffering but sinful man delivered him up according to god's predetermined plan and we see the reality that he literally did bear he himself emphatic our sins in his body and the, the word used here as we'll see in a moment on the tree on the tree the ultimate result of christ's unjust suffering as we will see was to bear our sins in his body on the tree it points to the glorious good news of the gospel that we are sinners notice the term our sins this is what uh, theologians have called the substitutionary atonement that christ the messiah god in human flesh took on himself alone our sins in his body human body he became like us and he bore them on the tree Now you want to ask the question, why does Peter use the word for tree or wood rather than the word that's used for cross? Now they've translated it cross because they know what it points to. Why does he use that? I think this reminds us of the reality of what God had declared in Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, which reveals the penalty for those who were condemned was to hang on a tree. And the Apostle Paul expands on that. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. The penalty for sin was to die and to be shamed, to hang on a tree. Cursed, as we'll see, is one who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13.
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Well, ultimately, that sin brings forth death. Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The reality is the wages of sin is death. And God is a just God and God requires death for sin. Not only is there physical death for sin, we see that in Genesis chapter 3. There is also spiritual death, an instant separation from God. And there is the second death, which is that final death, which is separation from God in punishment in the lake of fire forever. That's what the consequences for sin are. And here in our passage, we see that the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, chapter 1, chapter 2, the one in whom there was no sin, took on human flesh. He took on a body like ours, except without sin. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree or on the cross. Again, this speaks of the substitutionary atonement that God sent his son. He became flesh. He took on a human body, yet without sin. And he took our sins in his body. I've read this a few times before, but turn to Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus Christ and his new covenant is superior to the old covenant, which is a type and shadow of what was to come. The shadows were in the Old Testament pointing to the reality fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I can't read the whole thing, but Hebrews 10 verse 4, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hey, that was a symbol. It was a shadow. It's not the reality. Therefore, when he, that's speaking of Jesus, comes into the world, he, speaking of Jesus, says, Sacrifice and offering thou, speaking of the Father, has not desired. But a body, the Father, thou, has prepared for me, Jesus. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And, and you can read the whole portion, but look at verse 10. By this will, that's Christ taking on human flesh and dying for us, we have been sanctified through what? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But he, speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins at all time, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He himself bore our sins in his body. It's the heart of the gospel. It's what all the cults and all the different churches attack that are against Christ. They try to demean the reality of who Christ is and what he did or, or add to it. Here Peter is, is citing Isaiah 53:12. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. The reality that he would bear our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 11. The reality that he would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord would cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. It's the heart of the gospel that we are sinners. We are under God's judgment and yet God sent his son in our place to take the cup of his wrath. The sinless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross or on the tree. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ paid the price that God demands for sin. He was the only one who could do so because he was sinless. Look back in chapter 1, verse 17 of 1 Peter. Peter has been talking about Christ's sacrifice throughout. 1 Peter 1, 17, And if you address the Father... The, as, as if asked father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work conduct yourselves in fear during your time stay on earth fear god because god's an impartial judge and we were in big trouble but jesus took it for us he says knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of christ 
For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Turn up to uh, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. We are unrighteous. He is the righteous one. He died in our place. God requires a death for sin. He requires that. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews in Hebrews 9.28, that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. God the Son took on human flesh like us, yet he was sinless. And he paid the penalty for the sins that, uh, for our sins, which we deserved. He bore our sins in his body, and then he died. This is the transaction where God put our sins upon the spotless Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross and died in our place. You see, God is a just God. He judges impartially. And because he is righteous, he must judge all sin. Every sin, all sin. And you will either die in your sin and pay for it eternally, or you will receive through faith the free gift of the payment of your sins through Jesus Christ. But that means you must obey the Lord. You must acknowledge your sin, your culpability. You must turn from your sin in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Acknowledging you've been continually straying, following your own desires, just like a sheep. And turn to Jesus Christ personally, the person of Jesus, turning to him for salvation. You see, the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty to be paid. And God does not take sin lightly, although we sometimes take sin very lightly. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And our passage says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, but he has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Speaking of Jesus. God is a just God. He is not like the judges we see these days who do not bring forth justice. And ultimately, he judged his son for your sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. And this atonement does not apply unless you, as we will see, turn to Jesus for salvation. Either you will pay the penalty for your sins forever, every single one, or you can be forgiven and pardoned. That's just simply the reality. Have your sins paid for by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation of your sinful, the salvation of your sinful soul. What will it be? You can live your life any way you like. You can go on every day and do whatever you want to your heart's desire. But when you die, there will be judgment and you will not escape. And the scripture says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Everyone knows someone who's died by this time in our lives. People die. And once you die, it's done. Your eternity is sealed. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You may be cocky and arrogant now and think you can get away with your sin, but one day you will be terrified as you enter into eternal judgment at the hands of a righteous judge. Turn to Jesus Christ. He paid the full penalty, but you must admit your sin and turn to him for salvation. Here, Peter is writing to believers, although it applies to everyone, because Jesus Christ is the only Savior. But he is writing to believers, those whose sin has, have been forgiven, and he wants to share it's because Jesus Christ bore their sins in the body and the cro- on his body and the cross as a result of unjust suffering. And what a wonderful thing it is for us as believers to contemplate, to focus on, to think about our former purification from sins. To think about the reality that Jesus Christ has paid the full penalty for our sins. There's nothing to be paid. That for believers, there is no condemning judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. 
Praise God, brother and sister, for the forgiveness of sins. Praise him for what he has done through his son Jesus. And we come here to worship the Lord. If you notice, much of what we sing and share is about what Christ has done. And hopefully you are praising him, not just sitting or singing. You're praising him for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 7. And a little later, we're going to look where Nick read in Romans 6. You can kind of keep your fingers there also. Romans chapter 4. We should be the most thankful people on this earth. When you realize what you have been delivered from in Christ, we should be so thankful. There is no room for complaining and grumbling. We're to do all things without complaining and grumbling. We should be so thankful for the forgiveness of sins. Romans 4 verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We are so blessed. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Tremendous reality. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We've been completely delivered. There is no penalty for sin for us. Now, God disciplines us if we sin and there's a lack of rewards or more of rewards based on our deeds in the body, yes, but there is no penalty for sin. It has been taken by Jesus Christ. It is done. It is finished. But notice there's more that Peter wants us to see back in uh, chapter 2, 1 Peter, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Notice there's a purpose clause. There's a reason here. We certainly know there's the forgiveness of sins from other pastors. We understand that. But there's also a reason Peter wants us to see here. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's a purpose clause. The treme- one of the tremendous reasons why Jesus bore our sins. One of the tremendous reasons we see. He says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Sadly, some Christians never fully understand this truth to their own temporal bondage to sin and shame. This is tremendous, and it is not something to be felt, but as we will see, something to be reckoned and believed and acted upon by faith. It is life-changing if you have true life in Jesus Christ. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin. Now, in the original language, it is, a, it is an intense that's already done You could literally translate it this way, that having died to sin, or that being dead to sins, it speaks of a completed action. It's really important to see that. It's not that we might die to sin, it's that we having died to sin, we would live to righteousness. We, as we will see, are dead to sin, and we can now be alive to righteousness based on the choices we make in Christ or not. But what does this mean, having died to sin? It's interesting. Peter uses a different word for death here. This is a word that emphasizes uh, to cease to exist or to be missing or to depart or to be separate. And it was a euphemism for death, uh, to be separate. They're gone, right? But indeed, uh, it really gives us this understanding of what death is. Death is simply separation, The biblical concept of death involves the idea of separation. Physical death, separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death, separation of ourselves from God because of sin. The second death, separation from God in eternal punishment by the lake of fire. Death speaks of separation. And we know already that our sins have been removed from us, right? As far as the east is from the west. We already know that. The penalty of sin has been paid. So what is he speaking of here? I believe what he's speaking of in context is that through Christ's death, we have been severed completely from the power of sin. We are now able to live righteously rather than sinfully. You say, that's great, but I certainly don't feel like I'm separated from the power of sin at times. Actually, I feel quite controlled by it. And the same temptations and and failures I had before I was saved control me at times. They seem to have the same power over me as before. How can I be dead to sin when I feel this way? 
The answer comes in the biblical truth of what happens to believers when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture reveals that when we believed in Jesus Christ, we were united with him. We were united to his death, his burial, and resurrection. That's what we we portray in baptism. His death to sin and his life to God completely applies to us now. And that's what Nick read earlier. Turn to Romans chapter 6. This is a discourse on the theological reality of this that we need to understand because we walk around like those in chains at times when the locks have been opened up. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace might increase? Basically he's saying that, that when sin increased, grace increased, that God's grace in Christ covers everything. But then he has to address those who might take it wrongly. Hey, let's go sit it up because his grace just keeps abounding. No, no, no. May you never think that way. Something's drastically wrong if you think that way. Are we to continue to sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's what Peter is saying. Having died to sin, believer. And he is saying, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? This is a tremendous statement, which has nothing to do with our feelings but has everything to do with what Christ has done. Notice what he says in verse 3. Or do you not know, aren't you aware of this? That all of us who have been baptized or placed into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. We've been identified with his death. Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism or identification, union, in order that as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might, what? Walk in newness of life. Having died to sin, we can now walk in newness of life. And he says here, we've been placed into this relationship with Christ where his death, burial, and resurrection apply to us directly. And he died to sin. And when we are in Christ, we are dead to sin. And when we abide in Christ, we can live to God, as we will say. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with him, that's a botanical illustration, this, 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 this union with him in the likeness of his death. If we've been united with him, his death applies to us, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and it's so important, brother and sister, believer, you've got to know this. If you don't know this, you're going to be a slave to sin all your life. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him. In the Greek, it literally means co-crucified with him. That our body of sin might be done away. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is what? Freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, and the answer is yes, we have, right? We believe that we shall live with him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death he died, he died to what? Sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then here is the, what we are to reckon. Even so, reckon, consider, it's not, it's, not, it's not emotions. Reckon, it's an accounting term. Put it on the books. This is true. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Dead to sin. We are dead to sin if you are in Christ. We need to understand that. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because of his death, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Notice as he goes on, there should be something different. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey. You don't have to let sin control you anymore because in Christ we are dead to sin. You can say in Christ no to sin and you can offer yourself to him instead. You couldn't do this before. Satan doesn't want you to understand in Christ you can now say no to sin because Jesus has broken the power of sin. And do not go on presenting your members or your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't keep sinning. But present yourselves to God as those, notice this, alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of what? Righteousness. Doing the right thing as we will see to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. 
Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether sin, either sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. It's obedience. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, that's what we were, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching which you were committed and have been freed from sin. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is transformational for the true believer. If you're not a believer, it's not transformational because you're going to try all you can and you won't work. You don't have a relationship with Christ. It's all by him. We were slaves to sin, but Jesus set us free. We are no longer slaves to sin because of his death. We have died to sin. We've been freed from its power. We are no longer slaves to sin. In Christ, now we have the power to choose, and what we choose determines what we do. If we choose to trust the Lord and obey him rather than sin, then we experience life. If we choose to disobey the Lord, we experience that temporal death that sin brings. Verse 22 in Romans 6, But now having been freed from sin and a slave to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are no longer to offer ourselves to sin. We've been freed from its power. And so many believers don't understand this. They, they moan and groan on how they're caught up in sin. Confess your sin, repent of it, trust the Lord and be set free. Jesus sets us free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are those that have been set free. Look at John chapter 8. doesn't mean we don't fail, but we are those who now can live righteously because of Christ. Look at John chapter 8. Now, there were some Jews that believed in him, but they didn't really believe. It's interesting to look at believing in the Gospel of John. You'll see in a minute that they believed initially. Okay, we believe that, but then they didn't really believe as he confronts what's really underneath. That's what happens sometimes. People agree, but yet they don't agree. Okay? John eight thirty one. Jesus was Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Then they they answered him, said, We are Abraham's offspring. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you shall become free? Jesus answered them, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But it's by faith. We believe, yes, he has set me free from sin. It does not have its power over me anymore. I don't have to go that way anymore. I can trust the Lord to deliver me from temptations. I can offer myself to him instead. And when I fail, we confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may feel that you're trapped, that you can't get out of sin, but the reality is if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have been set free. We have died to sin. Now we can live to righteousness. This is why it's so shameful to see Christians with ongoing besetting sins. Yes, we all fail, but we don't need to anymore. Yes, we will fail at times, but we can follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. This is the mindset of the Apostle Paul because he recognized that his old man who had power over him, that person before he came to faith who had power and controlled his every action and thought, that man is dead. He no longer has power over him anymore. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ my old man is dead. And it's not no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's what we're seeing in our passage. Tremendous, tremendous truth. Death involves separation. We have been separated from the power of sin over our lives. We have been united to Christ 
Think of a car. If you've got a manual transmission, whatever it is, the clutch is pushed in. You can rev the engine all you want. The engine sounds like it's revving really a lot, but you're not going anywhere. It's been separated from its power. We have been separated from the power of sin over our lives because of the death of Jesus Christ. Anger, worry, depression, greed, lust. We've been set free. Are you living like a prisoner or like one who is set free? We must reckon by faith that we truly are dead to sin in Christ. But there's something else we must do. In the context of faith, we need to kill off those things. What do I mean by that? Turn to Colossians chapter 3. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to say no. We need to deny ourselves. In Christ, by his Spirit, we can now say no. We don't have to yield to those things. We can offer ourselves to Jesus instead. When you are tempted to sin, you're tempted to be worried, you're tempted to lust, whatever it might be, you don't have to go there. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things of earth. Notice this, the same language. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be, also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider, reckon this to be true, the members of your earthly body to be dead. To be dead to what? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For on account of these things, the wrath of God will come. And in them also you once walked, and when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its, with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to the not true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We are dead to those things. We can say no to them and we need to put on the truth in our hearts and minds. So back to our passage in First Peter. Tremendous reality. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin, or literally having died to sin. That we, having died to sin, having been separated by its power, it used to reign and rule over us in every thought. We used to stray continually like sheep. We were continually going our own way, just like dumb sheep, following our appetites and desires, looking for momentary gratification rather than following the shepherd. You know, sheep are really dumb, by the way. They must be cared for by a shepherd or they will die. They will die. Indeed, without care, they become prey. They find themselves stuck or in bad weather and ultimately they will die without a shepherd. You see, apart from Christ, we were continually, as we will see, straying like sheep, not recognizing the danger we were in, following our own foolish, harmful desires. And yet Christ set us free. Christ set us free. Now notice, not only are we free from the power of sin, notice we now can live to righteousness. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that having died to sin, that's the best translation, we would then live to righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it certainly means that we don't always live to righteousness. We're not perfect, right? But it's the goal that we would live to righteousness because sin's power has been broken in our lives. And we are in Christ. Now the idea of righteousness, we have been declared righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 5. When you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord, his righteousness was applied to, your, to, to you and we were declared righteous. That's justification. But what is he speaking of here? I believe he's speaking of righteous living, living to righteousness. Ultimately, as we'll see, it's obedience to his word. It's obedience. It's doing what is right in the context of God's will versus our will, which was not right. You know, if you look in First Peter, it's entrusting yourself to the Lord. It's doing what is right. That word is throughout First Peter. First Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, doing what is right, you are blessed. 
The clear implication is that doing what is right in the context of trusting Jesus Christ is obedience. And indeed, obedience comes in the context of a real relationship with Jesus Christ. We're learning this in 1 John. Turn to 1 John 2.29. 1 John 2.29 If you know that he is righteous, yes, we know Jesus is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Hey, if people are obedient from the heart, there's something that's changed in their lives. 1 John 3.7 Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. My brother and sister, if you try to go out and obey the Lord in your own strength, you will fail. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. It is by the power of the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, we can say no to sin. It's not on your own. You cannot on your own say no to sin. It will not work. You either become prideful, thinking, yes, I did that. Satan let you go that way. Hey, I'm so good. I'm controlling that sin. Or you will fall over and over again. Either way. It is impossible to deny ourselves apart from being in Christ, reckoning ourselves to be dead. What did Jesus say in Luke 9.23? If anyone wishes to come after me, follow Jesus. Let him deny himself. Say no. I'm tempted? No. By God's power and strength, I don't have to worry about that. I'm going to trust you, Lord God, instead. Renew your heart and mind. I don't have to respond in anger now. I don't have to. I'm trusting you, Lord God, to take care of these circumstances. I don't need to worry about anything, whatever it might be. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Die, die, die. Death to those things. No, 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 right? And then follow me. We need to say no to sin, deny ourselves daily, because we are separated from sin's power. And then we need to obediently follow him. Christ died for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, specifically that we would, having died to sin, live to righteousness. Let me ask you this. Are you alive to righteousness? Are you alive to righteousness? Are you by his power and strength offering yourself to him, doing what is right? Not perfectly. We fail, but yet we confess. Brother and sister, if you find yourself completely or continually defeated by sin, continually failing, if you're truly saved, then you need to renew your heart and mind with a fresher and deeper understanding of the cross of Christ. Confess your sin, confess your lack of faith and your ignorance, and offer yourself to God. Believer, if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. You're freed from sin, so offer yourself to God in obedience. That's why Christ died for us, one of the major reasons that we could live now to righteousness. We'll notice as we continue, through Christ's wounds on the cross, his death, we were healed. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You were healed. You know, my old nature has not been eradicated. That will happen. But yet its power has been broken. Because ultimately, as we will see, we have been healed. We have been healed of our sin sickness. For by his wounds you have been healed. You know, there's a lot of sicknesses out there. There's cancer, other things that are deadly. When people get that diagnosis, it's not good. It's deadly. But there's something that's more deadly than that. It's sin. And he says here, For by his wounds you were healed. Now, in the original language, there is no for there. And I think the NSB does it a little disservice here. There's no for. It actually, it continues the line in which has been going on. Who, 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 right here. It's really what it is. By whose, excuse me, by whose wounds you were healed. Literally, by whose wounds you were healed. Jesus' suffering brought about our healing. By whose wounds you were healed. 
What are these wounds? I don't believe it was the wounds that led up to the crucifixion. I believe in this case it's speaking specifically of his death, the ultimate consummation of that suffering, because that's where the healing came from the cross of Christ, not the suffering that led up to it. By his wounds you were healed. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell on him. The punishment came on Jesus. And by his scourging, literally stripes or blows, we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. By his wounds, you were healed. It's not physical healing, as some might claim. In the context of Isaiah 53 and our passage, it is through Christ bearing our sins in his body on the cross that we were healed. The term translated healed means cured. We were cured. We had a horrible sickness unto eternal death. And we were cured by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Completely cured. Completely cured. Brothers and sisters, we forget what Christ has done for us on a practical basis. Completely cured of the worst sickness that there could ever be. Sin which leads to eternal death. You see, there's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to be cured from sin. There's no other way to do so apart from the person of Christ. Believing in Him, turning in Him, recognizing your your sin. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men which we should be saved. There's salvation in no one else. People say, Jesus, 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 but they then say, you got to do this, this, and this. No, no, no. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe that you are a sinner in need of eternal salvation. You are going to hell. You need to be saved. And Jesus Christ paid the full penalty and he rose from it. And you look upon him and trust in him and believe in him. Now notice in the end of our passage, verse 25, we have an explanation of this wounds being healed. I think that's what it's saying. By his wounds you were healed, not for by his words, but by his words. And now we have an explanation. The for is there in Greek. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Tremendous explanation. By his wounds we were healed. And the explanation, we were in the past continually straying like sheep. That's what we see in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. We were continually straying, just like dumb sheep. And if not shepherded, they would inevitably die of exposure from beasts, fall off a cliff, get stuck, whatever it might be. Sheep are very dumb. Without a shepherd, they will die. And we were straying continually. That was our state before Christ continually following our own desires our own desires which would lead us off the eternal cliff of damnation we were just like dumb sheep who didn't realize they're about to die all of us were that way every one of you here who has not come to faith in jesus christ is continually straying like a dumb sheep on a course which leads to death and you don't get it you don't see it you don't know it but god is declaring that is your state so how can you be healed End of 24, by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. It's an interesting word. That I don't think returned is the best translation here. Uh, the term returned sounds like, hey, I was with him and then I went away and I came back. That's not true. We were straying like sheep and then we came to Jesus. So, so what's, what does this mean here? The term translated return here actually comes from the Greek word epistrepho. It means, the, it means the movement of turning about. That's really what it means. And it can speak of returning. If I turn about, I am returning. That's why it's translated that way sometimes. But it is often translated specifically in the context of repentance, the idea of turning. Let's take a look at a few passages as we finish up here. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 16. We'll see this word epistrepho twice. And it's speaking of John the Baptist who would turn the hearts of the people from their sin to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 1.16, speaking of John, prophetic about John the Baptist. And he will 
turn back many of the sons of Israel to the, uh, to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And it will be he who goes as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And here's our word. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Acts chapter 9.35, we have the statement, Turn to the Lord. Acts chapter 3.19, it says, Repent and turn. And, and, and the New King James says, Be converted. That's what it says. And then turn to Acts 14.15. Acts 14.15. The Apostle Paul and his companions are being hailed at this point because of the miraculous as gods in Lystra. And they're going to say, No, 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 no. Don't you do that. Acts 14.15. 14.15. And saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach to you the gospel in order that you should, epistrepho, turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And one last passage with Epistrepho I'll share. First Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report of a kind of reception we had with you, how you epistrepho you turned to God from idols. I believe in our passage it's best translated, but now you have turned. You have turned. You have been converted. You have repented. You see, without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus said in Mark 1, 14, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. He said in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed. You need to see your danger in sin. You need to turn from your sin to Jesus for salvation. To Jesus, not to a system, not to a hand raised, but to the person of Jesus Christ. Look at this back in our passage. But now you have turned or returned to who? To the shepherd. It's Jesus. You were straying like sheep continually. You heard the gospel and you turned to Jesus Christ and you got saved. You were healed. That's how we get healed. Today, if you have not turned to Jesus Christ, you can be healed acknowledging your sin before the Lord and your heart to him. Lord, I have sinned against you. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. Save me, Lord Jesus, and he will save you. He will save you. He says, now you've turned to the guardian, shepherd and guardian of your souls. What a tremendous way to close this. He's the good shepherd. He shepherds our souls. Yes, we have elders that shepherd souls. They do that in Christ. But he is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He shepherds our souls. What does he do? He directs us. He corrects us. He takes care of us. He shepherds us in righteousness. The Lord is my shepherd. He's our shepherd. And notice he is also the guardian. The term here is episkopos. It could be translated overseer or bishop. It's someone who watches over. Jesus is the one now who shepherds our souls and watches over us. And all this happened because of the cross of Christ. Isn't it wonderful? We were straying on the way to death, and now after turning to Jesus, we are the sheep of his pasture. He is lovingly shepherding us and watching over us. If you're his child, he's doing that. He is the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd. Let him shepherd you. Let him shepherd you. Let him convict you of your sin. Let him correct you. Let him spank you. Does his rod and staff comfort you? Now, does the reality that Jesus is shepherding or guarding over your souls comfort you or, or make you uncomfortable? He is shepherding us. What a tremendous passage. How can we respond rightly in suffering? We need to realize that we've been called for this. We need to realize, ultimately, that we need to follow in his footsteps. Trace the pattern he did. He trusted himself to the Father. He didn't sin. He kept trusting. And he allowed the will of the Father to be manifest in bringing our redemption. Obey the Lord.
the pattern we see is one of love and one of self-sacrifice for us. What will the Lord do in our lives? He can use those things for redemptive opportunities that they might account of your good deeds as they observe observe them and glorify God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you. Today we've seen the tremendous reality of the cross of Christ. Some of you need to come to the cross and trust Jesus Christ. And those of us who know Christ, we need to realize that we are dead to sin and we are alive to righteousness. Say no to sin. Trust the Lord. We're dead to sin. Trust him. Obey him. Turn to Psalm 23. I want to finish with this. our great shepherd and guardian of our souls. We see David speaking of him. Psalm 23. And if you know about David's life, he had a lot of troubles. But he trusted the Lord and he allowed him to shepherd him. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of what? Righteousness. Die to sin, live to righteousness. For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. My enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely... Goodness and loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is so tremendous to see what you have done through your son, Jesus. Father, I pray, first of all, for those who are still in eternal bondage, on their way to eternal damnation, in bondage to sin that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn from their sin, acknowledging it, turn to your son Jesus and ask him to save them, knowing that he will. And Father, I pray for those of us who know you, may we remember these truths, may we reckon them true because you said so and you are faithful. May we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow your son. Father, thank you that he is shepherding and guarding our souls. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.